Isaiah 58, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. The prophet writes, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger, and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will always guide you. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the spiritual practices described in the Bible that has always fascinated me is the biblical call to fasting. Throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God's people engaged in times and in seasons of fasting, times and seasons when holy men and women would abstain from food for a period of time in order to seek God's will and grow closer to him. In the Old Testament, these fasts are often times of spiritual urgency, when people have an urgent need to seek out God's will. King David, for example, fasts as he weeps for his dying child in 2 Samuel 12. 
The Jews fast in the story of Esther when their people are threatened with extermination at the hands of the Persian Empire. The city of Nineveh fasts when Jonah the prophet comes there and declares God's judgment against them. But at other times, people fast in the Old Testament for seasons of preparation. Moses fasts before he receives the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel fasts in preparation for the Day of Atonement. Fasting in the Bible is a sign that something is not right with the world, with ourselves. Fasting is a practice of self-denial that points us to repentance, points us to the hope of forgiveness and restoration. And in the New Testament, Jesus picks up on these same themes, highlighting in some, in some instances the dangers of fasting that Isaiah points to in our passage for today. Because fasting can fall into the sin of spiritual hypocrisy, that people can seem spiritual when, when, because they fast, when in reality they continue to live lives of sin and oppress the poor. Fasting can also fall into the pit of legalism. People can think that their spiritual practices are what actually save them rather than the grace of God. But Jesus says something in the Sermon on the Mount that has always convicted me and made me wonder. Jesus tells his disciples... When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, who make sure they look tired and hungry so everybody knows they are fasting. The truth is they have already received their reward. But when you fast, wash your face and do your hair so no one knows that you're fasting, but only your Father in heaven who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is unseen will reward you. Jesus says, when you fast. Not if you fast. When you fast. And this has always convicted me. I was not raised in a tradition of fasting, as I suspect is true for many of us here. Fasting was not a part of my family's devotional or spiritual practices. And when I was in university studying the early church, I became quite bothered by this. Because scripture, Jesus himself, commands the followers of God to fast. But I didn't really know what fasting was. When the Southern Baptists and Pentecostals who led my high school talked about fasting, they talked about not eating at all for a day, for a week, for a month, uh, when they felt it was necessary, when, it, when they felt it was necessary as they were leading up to an important decision in their lives. So couples, for example, would fast when they thought that God might be calling them to give up everything that they had and become missionaries. School boards would fast, or church leaders would fast when they were in a season of, of, uh, of transition or uh, visioning uh, process, when God, they thought that God was calling their congregation to a change in direction or to some big new thing. But when my Catholic or Orthodox friends would talk about fasting, they didn't talk about not eating at all, they, and they didn't talk about 
fasting in preparation for major life decisions that had to be made. My Catholic and Orthodox friends would talk about fasting as a regular rhythm of their church lives, during which the entire congregation would together abstain from meat and wine and sometimes from dairy and oil in preparation for the great feasts of the Christian year, like Christmas and Easter, the season of Lent, the season of Advent, were times of preparation for these congregations to voluntarily give up an important part of their diet in preparation for these big church celebrations. So when I was in university, I wasn't sure what fasting in my life ought to look like. Was fasting a total abstinence from all food in preparation for a major life decision? Or was fasting a change to a simpler diet in preparation for celebration? And most importantly, why was there no reformed way to fast? Why was, was, was this one of the things that we dropped in the Reformation? And if so, why? Why is such a consistent and clear biblical command not practiced in our entire tradition? These questions really bothered me. I think that part of the reason this bothered me so much and why this question of fasting became so important to me was because of my experience in the mission field in the Dominican Republic, moving from there to North America. I grew up in the Dominican Republic where my parents were missionaries. And there, even though in North America our income would be considered modest at best, in the Dominican Republic we were quite rich. We had everything that we could ask for and more. And anything more would have been embarrassing because my, the, the, my mom and dad worked with very poor people, uh, some of the poorest of the poor in the country. Um, most of their ministry was to Haitian immigrants to the Dominican Republic, many of whom were not there legally. Um, and so they would live in shanty towns on sugarcane plantations where they were underpaid, uh, taken advantage of, and oppressed in many ways. But when my family moved to Texas in 2001, I was really shocked at the level of wealth and comfort that people lived in. Air conditioning, high-speed internet, pantries full of food all the time, and the grocery stores, man. In the Dominican Republic, when you went to buy toilet paper, you'd go down to the corner store and they'd ask you if you wanted one ply or two ply. Here we have an entire aisle of toilet paper. Everything you can imagine, one ply, two ply, three ply, four ply, scented, unscented, quilted, patterned, luxury, ultra strong, ultra soft. I mean, the choices never seem to end. And I began over the course of my time in high school and university to feel a real disconnect with the poor. In the Dominican, our family would visit poor neighborhoods, poor churches every week. I knew people by name who lived in abject poverty. They were my friends. But when we moved to North America, when we moved to Texas, we were buffered. We were surrounded by the boulevards and sidewalks of suburbia where the poor were not allowed. 
I was buffered by zoning laws that kept the poor concentrated in specific parts of the city that people called the rough part of town. Places that decent people avoided. I began to feel a disconnect with the poor, which is a problem because Scripture calls us to love the poor, to care for the oppressed, to loose the chains of injustice and to break every yoke, as our passage says today, to share our food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to clothe, to clothe the naked and shine the light of the Lord in the darkness. And this is what the root of fasting is about, solidarity with the poor. When Christians fast, the rich live like the poor. And this has two very practical functions. On the one hand, when the rich live like the poor, they come to understand the experience and the struggle of the poor. Fasting is a tangible way for those of us who are well off to enter into the experience of what it looks like and feels like to live without. On the other hand, when the rich live like the poor, it saves them money, which they can then donate to the poor. So there's that too. And this is what fasting traditionally was about. Uh, this is why fasting is c connected with celebration in Catholic and Orthodox circles. During Lent, the rich eat like the poor, so that during Easter, on Easter, the poor can eat like the rich. They can celebrate the feast together. As I became older, God began to open my eyes to the ways that Reformed Christians live and act in ways that get at the heart of what the Bible is getting at when it calls us to fasting, even though we might not call it fasting. Reformed Christians are notoriously frugal, you might have heard. I've heard a lot of the same jokes about Dutch people as I've heard about Scottish people. Reformed Christians are well known for living well within their means and for contributing both their time and their money to institutions that work to spread the gospel and fight injustice around the world. I know people who are very well off, who want for nothing in this world, who wash and reuse their Ziploc bags, I know families that choose to sponsor a missionary rather than buy a second car. I know retirees who forego their cottage, who forego buying a cottage so that they can spend their time volunteering with disaster response services. Young couples who use their vacation to go on mission trips, business owners and CEOs who volunteer at soup kitchens and give well above 10% of their income to the church church communities that sacrifice so much to give a refugee family a chance at a new life away from war and violence. The Heidelberg Catechism in its answer about the meaning of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, beautifully summarizes what is at the heart of Reformed frugality. I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need.
we recognize that everything that we have is a gift from God's hand. Our work, our homes, our families, our very lives. And we believe and confess that God gives us these gifts to share with others. To care for the orphan and the widow. To see that the needs of the poor are fulfilled. To visit the sick. To comfort those who mourn. To break the yoke of oppression and set the prisoner free. This is the heart of true fasting. There may be times in our lives when we need to fast in order to prepare for a major life decision. It's probably also a good practice to fast during Lent and Advent in preparation for Christmas and Easter too. But the heart of true fasting is to care for the poor, to love those who God loves. When my parents were missionaries in the Dominican Republic, the churches that supported us would send down teams of people periodically to visit our family and to see the work that my parents were busy with on the mission field. And Fairway Christian Reformed Church outside of Grand Rapids was my parents' calling church and a great supporter of our family. And there was one couple, Prez and Mickey Hopkins, who came down with a team from Fairway CRC almost every year when we were in the DR. And I thought they were so cool. As a kid, I would like follow them around whenever they were in town. Prez was this big, strong guy who wore Hawaiian shirts, and Mickey had a pixie cut, which at the time I thought was really rebellious and cool. I never really thought much about the fact that they came down almost every year because nobody else did that. I guess as a kid, you just kind of accept things the way that they are. When I got older, I found out that Prez and Mickey were actually quite wealthy, and they lived like it. And the first time that they came down to visit us in the Dominican Republic, they experienced deep poverty for the first time in their lives. And through that experience, God moved them so deeply that when they came back home, they decided that they needed to change the way that they lived. So when they got back home, they took a look at their life and talked about how they could live more modestly. And they had this really cool pair of matching sports cars, like muscle cars, like really fast, really cool cars, really expensive. <laughs> and what they decided to do, they decided to sell their cars and donate that money to Christian Reformed World Missions. And on top of that, they became advocates and champions for the mission work of the Christian Reformed Church around the world. And every year, they would pay for a team from their church to come down to the Dominican Republic to visit us and support us in our work. They used their money to give other people the chance to become champions for missionary work around the world. And these people in turn became mission advocates themselves. 
President Mickey gave up something that was special to them, something that brought them joy to better support the work of the church among the poor around the world. The challenge this week in the Lent passport devotional is to give up something that brings you joy, to donate it or to sell it and donate the money that you make or to give it up and donate the money that you save. And I challenge you to try this and see how God blesses you through it. It might be your favorite jacket that you donate to the thrift store so that someone else can enjoy, enjoy it as much as you did. It might be giving up meat for a week and donating the money that you save to a food pantry. It might be a bigger change of lifestyle that God has convicted you of, like Prez and Mickey. Store up your treasures in heaven, Christ says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sisters and brothers in Christ, our God has given us so much. Let us bless his holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. O Lord our God, we bless you and praise your holy name. You have given us so much, and for all this, we give you thanks. We know that every good thing is a gift from your hand. And we pray that as you have blessed us, we may be a blessing to others. We pray that the things that you have given us would be used by us to shine your light in the world. Bless us, O Lord, we pray, that we may bless those who you love. In your name, amen.